it sounds like they're waiving the confidentiality just for that. That's beautiful. That, this is fantastic. <laughs> Jesus. So, <laughs> I imagine all of that is on tape. <laughs> so they went ahead and agreed to be recorded Good. and gave all the details from every minute what happened. It was almost spring in Los Angeles. The days were getting longer. And much like the trees of California, the Menendez investigation was finally starting to bear fruit. It had been seven months since Kitty and Jose were gunned down in their living room. Police suspected their sons had something to do with it. Eric and Lyle had gotten more than half a million dollars from insurance. And they were in a rush to spend their windfall on Rolexes and fancy cars. The cops also learned that the brothers hired an expert to wipe their family computer. Eric and Lyle knew their father's original will listed them as heirs. They worried the latest will would disinherit them, so they had it destroyed. The police had their suspicions, but they had no guns, no witnesses, and no confession. They couldn't directly link the brothers to the crime. It's strange to think that a case that became one of the most watched trials on TV might have never gotten solved if not for one woman. Judalon Smith. J-U-D-A-L-O-N Smith, S-M-Y-T-H. Judalon Smith had never met the Menendez brothers, but she knew their darkest secrets. I'm your host, Vinny Politan, and this is Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a court TV mystery. I'm a former prosecutor and journalist, and now lead anchor for court TV. Today, episode two, The Tapes. Smith was an entrepreneur in Los Angeles. She had this reddish blonde bob that grazed over her shoulders. She was in her 20s, but already ran her own small business. Smith could be audacious in some moments, but perhaps too trusting in others. One day, she was listening to a tape of Dr. L. Jerome Ozeal. At the time, he was a psychologist known for his expertise in phobias and, quote, sex-related disorders. I had some tapes from a seminar, which I had listened to, and I was interested in taking some of those seminars. So she reached out to Dr. Ozeal, and in no time, he got her to change her mind. He called me back and talked me out of the seminars and into the idea that I needed one-on-one therapy. Okay, maybe this quick pivot should have raised red flags, but it didn't. Smith was game. But from there, their doctor-patient relationship became something else. It would flip-flop between um, therapy and his idea that he was my ideal person romantically. Not exactly above board, especially since Dr. Ozeal was married with two children. But in the summer of 1989, Judalon Smith and Dr. Ozeal became involved. Every extramarital affair comes with strings attached. That's par for the course. But this one would make Judalon Smith privy to a lot more than she bargained for. 
A few months into their relationship, Dr. Ozil was at her house when he got an urgent message. Eric Menendez needed to talk. It had been months since Eric or Lyle had come in for a therapy session. Dr. Ozil wondered, what could be so urgent now? And so from my house, he called Eric and spoke with him and set up an appointment. Eric was frantic. He demanded to see Dr. Ozil as soon as possible, but only under certain conditions. He needed to talk alone after business hours. So they set up an appointment for the evening of Halloween. Dr. Ozil had an inkling of what it could be about. When he hung up the phone, he said that he hoped he wasn't going to hear what he thought he was going to hear. And when I asked him what he thought he was going to hear, he said that they killed his parents. Naturally, Dr. Ozil was worried about being alone with a killer. So he wanted a witness nearby. That's how Smith got roped in. He was asking me to come and be there in case something happened to him. On Halloween, Eric arrived at his therapist's office, and soon after, Dr. Ozil asked him to call his brother, Lyle. He wanted both of them there to get the full story all at once. When Lyle arrived, he was furious. In the waiting room, Judalon Smith was on high alert, ready to listen to what was about to unfold. He just, you know, told me to pay attention and listen carefully. And if I, you know, heard anything that seemed like he was in danger, that I was to call the police. Judalon Smith sat quietly in the empty waiting room. Through the thin walls, she heard bits and pieces. Lyle was very angry, and he was yelling at his brother that he was angry at him. That he, I mean, he was just upset with him and couldn't believe that he had done this or said this. The session lasted four hours. After the brothers left, Dr. Ozeal filled in the gaps for Smith. It was just as he expected, he told her. The brothers had admitted to killing their parents. Smith couldn't believe what she was hearing. Months ago, the story of a double homicide in Beverly Hills had been all over the news. But the slain couple's sons had never been considered suspects. Dr. Ozeal and Judalon Smith were terrified. Now they knew the truth. Who was to say that Lyle and Eric wouldn't come after them, too? It wasn't speculation. Dr. Ozeal said... They had threatened him and everyone connected to him and that um, it wasn't safe. Smith thought their only option was to call the police. But Dr. Ozeal wouldn't hear it. I told Ozeal that we should go to the police. Then he said that the Menendez brothers owned the police. He told her calling the cops would be suicide. So the minute that, you know, anyone went to the police and told them anything about them, that the Menendez family would get a phone call and I would be dead. It was one of those moments that Smith was perhaps too trusting. They were in this together now, so she stayed quiet. In the weeks that followed, 
Dr. Ozil saw the brothers for two more sessions. He began to think his only way out was to get the brothers to confess on tape. He prided himself on being a persuasive guy. He could get them to explain why they had killed their parents. Maybe then they'd turn themselves in. It turned out Dr. Ozil was right about one thing. He was persuasive. In their last session together, he convinced Eric and Lyle to agree to be on tape, recorded. He was telling them that the tape would be for their benefit, that if they ever got caught, that he would be their only ally, that he would be the only person who could get them off. If none of this seems logical, you're right. But somehow, Dr. Ozil convinced the brothers that if the authorities ever came after them, he was their only hope. And that they would need to have this tape recording in order to um, prove to a jury that they were remorseful. If the affair had lasted, maybe then Smith wouldn't have gone to the cops. But by the spring of 1990, it did end. Over time, Smith realized Dr. Ozil didn't love her. She said he was manipulating her. In November, I was slipping into something called the Stockholm Syndrome. He became my lifeline. And after the confessions, he became my lifeline. Dr. Ozil and Judalon Smith both gave different accounts of what happened after she overheard the brothers confess. But after that night, Smith says Ozil started using intimidation to keep her quiet. He said that he would call Lyle and Eric and tell them that I had been outside the door and that I knew and that I was wanting to go to the police and that they would kill me. By the time the couple broke up, Smith said Dr. Ozil had done all he could do to shut her up. But his plan backfired. Because now... Now that she was on her own, Smith said she felt free to do the right thing. She felt bold. On March 5th, 1990, Judalon Smith called the Beverly Hills Police Department. The very next day, she was in a room with Detective Les Zoller. You remember him. He's been the lead detective since the night of the murders. The district attorney assigned to the case sat in too. Their six-hour conversation was recorded. I tried to give the information that I had that would, you know, lead them to be able to make an arrest. And some of that information was about they had purchased the guns with the phony ID and the purchase was made in San Diego. But most importantly, Smith told the cops that a taped confession existed. She calls Dr. Ozeal Jerry here. Jerry decided that the boys needed to agree to be tape recorded. It was at that last therapy session that Jerry got their confession all on tape. This was a major break. The detective and the DA got just what they were looking for from Smith. They had struck gold. So they were aware that those tape recordings could be made aware to a third person. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they're waiving the confidentiality just for that. That's beautiful. That, that's just fantastic. <laughs> Jesus. So, <laughs> I imagine all of that is on tape. 
So they went ahead and agreed to be recorded and gave all the details from every minute what happened. And they... Both men seem almost giddy with relief. In that moment, they thought the taped confession could be used in court, no problem. Both men thought the brothers had waived confidentiality, but they were wrong. The fight over that taped confession would go all the way to the California Supreme Court. Two days after Judalon Smith met with the cops, Beverly Hills police were at Dr. Ozeal's home. His wife, Laurel, opened the door still in her bathrobe. They had a search warrant, they told her. Her husband was connected to a felony in Beverly Hills. Before Dr. Ozeal could ask any questions, the cops were rummaging through their house. He tried telling them about doctor-patient confidentiality. These weren't just any tapes. They were privileged material. Ozeal later testified that he definitely had a significant level of fear at the moment that the police um, uh, and a number of other people were in my house with a search warrant seizing the materials that I had tried hard to uh, protect and keep secreted uh, all that time. They searched his house and his office and eventually ended up at his bank. That's where they found a safety deposit box. In that safe, there were audio cassette tapes, diaries, and notes. This was it. The cops on the scene were supposed to put the tapes and notes in a sealed evidence container. Instead, the police uh, demanded that I play the tapes. It was a bold move that broke protocol. But the cops said they needed to make sure they had the right evidence. Ozeal tried to stop them from listening to the brothers' confession. After all, in the words of Dr. Ozeal himself, a therapist is like a minister. People tell therapists their deepest secrets, knowing they'll remain secrets. We haven't heard the tapes. The court has them under seal. But we have heard from several sources that what's on them will clearly indicate that the sons did kill their parents. Back at the Menendez mansion, Lyle was getting a late start to his day. He had been up all night playing chess with a friend. It was now early afternoon. Lyle decided to head to lunch with two friends. He was at the wheel. But they would never make it to the Cheesecake Factory. As Lyle backed out of the driveway at 722 Elm Drive for the last time, a police car swerved in front of his Jeep. There was a second cop car in the rearview mirror. There was a moment of stillness on Elm Drive before the chaos erupted. Several police officers got out of their vehicles and surrounded the three men. Their guns were drawn. They were yelling at Lyle and his friends to get down on the ground. Lyle was put in a cement cell at the county jail. His two friends were questioned and released. Lyle was charged with two counts of suspicion of murder. He was alone. It was confusing. It had been months. Why was all of this happening now? Since the murders, his brother had been his confidant. Now, he wasn't sure who to turn to. Eric was at a tennis tournament in Israel. It was about 7.30 in the morning in Tel Aviv when Eric got a call. It was patched through from the front desk of his hotel. Lyle was in custody. 
Eric could have run, but he decided to return to the U.S. Eric landed in L.A. three days after Lyle's arrest. Detectives met him at the airport, and within hours, Eric was in a cell near his brother, reunited. By now, the news was breaking across America. Seven months after the shootings, Eric Menendez, 19, and Lyle Menendez, 22, were arrested for killing their parents. The brothers' faces were on every newsstand nationwide. It was a page one story. The LA Times cover read, Sons named in double slayings in Beverly Hills. The public was stunned. Some of Eric and Lyle's relatives couldn't believe it. Their uncle, Carlos Baralt, told the Times, It's extremely hard to believe anything like this could happen, that the boys were the ones who killed their parents. It made no sense. Why would two strapping young men, with everything they could ever have or want, kill their own blood? Well, it was a, it was a huge story, of course. That's John Johnson, the former L.A. Times reporter and author. I mean, it, it was a big, high-profile murder. It would definitely was the talk of the town. Nobody could figure out exactly how it happened. And until someone, anyone, figured out what had happened, all of America would be paying attention. We couldn't turn away. This case felt like a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. It made Americans ask themselves, what makes humans so cruel to one another? Cruel even to their family. But it wasn't just the twists and turns of the case that made it a showstopper. It was a case full of big personalities, like Leslie Abramson. These people are dead and they were killed by their own children. Now you have to ask if you knew nothing else. What went on in that family for that to happen? Abramson was a defense attorney who was known for being unrestrained, direct, fiery. She was perceived as a top-notch defense attorney and, and somebody you didn't want to go up against if you were a prosecutor. The Menendez brothers were facing the possibility of the death penalty. That made Leslie Abramson even more interested in their case. She liked the challenge. Capital cases were just that. She had an impressive record of winning them, and she wanted to win for the Menendez brothers. So she took their case. So the first order of business for Abramson? Keep Dr. Ozeal's tapes out of the courtroom. This move would delay the trial for three years while the brothers waited in jail. Abramson contended that Dr. Ozeal's tapes could not be admitted in a trial as evidence. Here's law professor Lori Levinson. Ordinarily, if somebody goes to a psychotherapist and if they're going for therapy, what would be said would be confidential. That even includes a situation where a client confesses to murder. But it's not an absolute privilege. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions that came to play in this case. Abramson argued that it was unlawful that the police had even listened to the tapes that day they charged into Ozeal's home. But the prosecutors were saying that the tapes should be allowed because in them, Eric and Lyle can be heard threatening Dr. Ozeal's life. It's something that we call the dangerous patient exception. If in going there, they're making threats to the psychotherapist or to third parties, then that's something that the court can allow to be revealed to the prosecution and even the jury. The courts batted the case back and forth. Eventually, it went all the way up to the California Supreme Court. The issue before the California Supreme Court is whether this exception for the dangerous patient would apply at all. 
For three years, the defense waged an all-out legal war to keep Dr. Ozeal and his tape out of court, arguing the psychologist broke the patient-therapist privilege. That's Terry Moran, the court TV reporter who covered this case. But the prosecution argued that the privilege did not apply because the doctor claimed Lyle threatened him, thereby allowing Ozeal to break his silence. Finally, in 1992, nearly three years after the murders, the California Supreme Court made their decision. Ozeal's notes of Sessions would be allowed at trial, but not the tape of the brother's confession. The Supreme Court ruled that particular tape did not qualify for the dangerous patient exception. That was a setback, but the prosecution got something out of it. And the prosecution won. The California Supreme Court ruled that Dr. Ozeal could be called to testify about his sessions with the brothers. Dr. Ozeal would be the prosecution's star witness. Finally, a date for the Menendez trial was set, July 20th, 1993. By now, Eric was 22, Lyle was 25. Outside the walls of the L.A. County prison, the Rodney King riots had come and gone, a new President Clinton had assumed office, and the World Wide Web was now online for the public. But the only thing that mattered to the Menendez brothers was a chance at getting out of prison. A new prosecutor had been assigned their case. My name is Pamela Bozanich, and I was the lead prosecutor on the first Menendez trial. Bozanich was one of the first women to be hired by the district attorney's office in L.A. Up until the time I was assigned the case, I'd done a variety of cases, but a lot of sex crimes, because when I joined the DA's office, uh, they were just starting to hire women, and so all the men took their sex crime cases and gave them to the women to try, figuring that we were better with women and children. Before this, Bazanich had been working on a child abuse case. It had an unusual distinction. At the time, the longest and most expensive trial in American history. Defense attorney Leslie Abramson had a reputation for winning at any cost, but Pamela Bazanich was her equal. The ironic thing about it is that her opposite number, Pam, was just as tough. So they, they made quite a couple, the two of them. Bazanich worked with investigators on the Menendez case while she wrapped up her work on the child abuse trial. Now, the prosecution had Ozeal as a witness, two tapes, and a link to the weapons. Lyle and Eric waited three long years for their trial to begin, but during that time, something else happened. Court TV launched. The network televised key moments of the Rodney King trial and other courtroom proceedings. Here's Stephen Brill, founder of Court TV, on Charlie Rose. The reaction we've been getting lately is um, there are actually more judges and more lawyers in other places around the country that, uh, that think that there ought to be more televised trials so that people get some kind of a balanced view and see places where the system is actually working. We reached out to Brill. He was unable to do an interview. But Scott Tufts was working in news when the Menendez case was playing out. He now manages the newsroom at Court TV. I know the goal was to allow the average American to see the criminal justice system in the way that it actually operates every day not some kind of filtered version that's delivered on the evening news. The gavel to gavel, here's what happens in a courtroom. Court TV was considering not just playing snippets of the Menendez trial, they wanted to show it from beginning to the end. So 
1991, that was still part of the dawn of the cable boom. Court TV coming along uh, was just fulfilling another area of compelling live coverage of stories which were fascinating and real. Viewers would have a front row seat to justice. That wasn't common back then. The Menendez trial was one of the first to be broadcast to the nation. Viewers didn't quite know what to make of it. Here's Lori Levinson again. People just didn't know that there would be more subtleties to the case because uh, at the time there wasn't a lot of sophistication in how you view a case that's televised, how you comment on a case that's televised, and if in your courtroom, how you act during a case that's televised. It was a big unknown. How would the Menendez trial be received? Would people be bored, riveted? If you're old enough to remember anything about the Menendez brothers, you remember that everyone was watching this trial. It became fodder for conversation at home, with friends, and even with strangers. John Johnson, the L.A. Times reporter, recalls seeing kids dressed up as Eric and Lyle for Halloween. A few of them would have signs around their necks saying Lyle or Eric, just to make sure that everybody knew what they were doing. This trial became a cultural phenomenon, thanks to the judge who greenlit cameras in his courtroom. His name was Stanley Weisberg. He met with the defense and prosecution in the Menendez case to discuss whether court TV should be allowed to broadcast. We met in chambers and um, it was decided that we would not have cameras in the courtroom. It's a little known fact that he almost refused to let cameras televise the Menendez trial. Here's court TV's Scott Tufts again. Many viewers at home or many Americans wouldn't know the names Lyle and Eric Menendez without cameras in court for their trial. Ultimately, the negotiation was between Weisberg and Court TV. It makes me wonder, if cameras hadn't been in the courtroom, would the Menendez brothers have become iconic at all? The defense and the prosecution went off to prepare their opening statements. They thought the only public they would face in the courtroom would be the jury. But the defense had bigger problems than the attention the case was getting. The evidence against the Menendez brothers was overwhelming. Bozanich now says she had an inkling of what the defense's strategy might be. Miss Abramson's reputation was that she would go to the wall for her clients, that she fought very hard for them, even if a lesser approach might have been more effective. She was very passionate about um, making sure that her clients were convicted of as little as possible, regardless of how she did it. Bozanich knew what Leslie Abramson was capable of, but the public had no idea. Prosecutors had the guns, they had the tapes, they even had their therapist as a witness. What could the defense possibly bring to the table? Just a month before the trial began, Leslie Abramson made a stunning announcement that made headlines. It revealed the strategic approach the defense would take in trial. He did not tell them the true motivation for the killings. To do that, he would have had to reveal the shameful, in his opinion, secrets that he had spent most of his life concealing. That and more next time. Murder in the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery, is hosted by Vinny Politan. It's produced by Janaki Mehta and Tana Robbins of Neon Hum Media. 
Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. The executive producer at Neon Hum Media is Jonathan Hirsch. For Kate's Network Original Productions, Sophia Kelly is the Senior Vice President and Sean Cameron is the Senior Director. Production assistance is provided by Kate Mishkin and Haley Fager. Special thanks to Natalie Wren. You can see Court TV's complete coverage of the first Menendez trial in the Trials on Demand section on our website, courttv.com.